0: This is Tony Franklin here. Well, where's he from? What's the fun? Jimmy Page and Paul Rogers. Back in the big head days. you just play that rock and roll? The Joker. Okay?
1: This is not a test, this is rock and roll (laughs) Oh yes, the immortal words of Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam Perhaps I should have started this show by saying um, This is not a test, this is Play That Rock and Roll As this is Play That Rock and Roll Podcast Edition Which is sort of the next evolutionary step of a show I hosted on YouTube for the last uh, seven or so years for those of you who don't know, I hosted a show on YouTube called Play That Rock and Roll in which we produced over 40 videos about uh, various topics and bands and albums in, uh, uh, regarding the classic rock era. Classic rock is just a great topic to talk about. There's so much great music to explore. And I just feel that it's a subject that would lend itself really well to a podcast. So I've always wanted to try to talk about classic rock in the podcast format so that's what we're going to start with today. And uh, much like my old YouTube series, I'm going to launch the podcast version of this show by talking about one of my absolute favorite bands of the classic rock era, and that is the Steve Miller Band. Now, Steve Miller is a personal favorite of mine for a lot of reasons, um, one of which is that, uh, you know, for me, he's a local boy. Uh, he was born in Milwaukee. Uh, as was I. I still live here, although he's lived all over the place. And, you know, most people only, you know, know him for songs like, you know, The Joker or Fly Like an Eagle. But as someone who's followed his career and done a lot of research and, you know, read a lot of articles and listened to a lot of albums, um, Steve's career is way more interesting, I think. Than I think most people realize and uh, we're going to touch on some of the best parts um, over these next two episodes. Uh, he has a very lengthy career, so to sort of give everything, um, you know, a reasonable amount of coverage, we're going to try to, well, we're going to break it up into two, two episodes. This first one is going to look at his early life um, and the band formation in the mid-60s up until his uh, sort of his commercial peak in uh, the late 70s and then part two will pick up and look at the the second half of his career so uh, without further ado let's get started let's uh let's talk about the steve miller band and uh you know see what we can find steve miller was born in milwaukee On October 5th, 1943, which makes him, as of today, 76 years old, his parents were Bertha and George. Uh, George's nickname was Sonny. And uh, it was a very musical family. His mother Bertha was an amateur singer and his father Sonny was an amateur recording engineer. Now because of this recording hobby, uh, Sonny made a lot of friends who were musicians. Some of whom were famous. One of uh, the most famous of Sonny's friends was a guy named Les Paul. And if you're a a music fan at all, I think you should know who Les Paul is. He's the inventor of the electric guitar. Another Wisconsin native. uh, For those uh, Wisconsin listeners, I I would really encourage you to go over and check out the Les Paul Museum in Waukesha. That's a, a... a great resource, you know, to learn about a guy who was instrumental not just to classic rock, but really modern music itself. And establishments like that you can't take for granted because you never really know when when funding for that kind of stuff might run out. So, you know, if, if you can, take the time, get over there if you're a music fan, check it out. Uh, I, I definitely think it's worth the time. So... I, I guess the story goes is Sonny was at a Les Paul concert and uh, he brought along some of his recording equipment and he asked Les before the show if he could record part of the show and Les said yes as you know as long as uh, Sonny would let him listen to it afterwards and from there on they became very good friends. Uh, such good friends that when Les Paul married Mary Ford Sonny and Bertha, Steve's parents, were the best man and matron of honor, respectively. And uh, sort of reciprocating that, Les Paul became Steve's godfather. So Steve, from a very early age, was you know, surrounded by hugely important musical figures. You know, not just his musical family, but Les Paul, and we'll get to some others in a moment. But before we get to anything else, I'm going to play a short clip from Steve Miller's 1994 box set. It's a very early recording of Les Paul sort of playing around on his guitar, and you can hear a very young Steve Miller kind of playing along with him. Uh, It's a very interesting clip that was recorded by Steve's father, Sonny, and uh, it just... The sort of the sort of archival thing that really only belongs on, on like a box set, but it is really cool to hear uh less, you know, be very encouraging to Steve who's not much more than a baby at this point. So let's take a listen to that now.
0: Come on over, Steve. Hey, that was very good. You wanna know something? You got a good good voice there. I like it very much. We all like it, don't didn't like it. we? Better. I, I think you should keep singing like that. That's good. That's what I used to do when I was a little guy. More do it, the more embarrassed I get. Oh, you don't want to get embarrassed. We all sing and play. Steve, you're really going to go places.
1: So, Steve was born in Milwaukee, but he was really raised in Dallas, Texas. Uh, His family moved to to Dallas in 1950, and shortly after moving there, Sonny became friends with T-Bone Walker. Now, T-Bone Walker is one of those quintessential American bluesmen, you know, of the 1940s and 50s. If you watch any documentary about The formation of rock and roll. T-Bone Walker is going to be mentioned. He was incredibly influential, and um, he was friends with Steve's father. Again, sort of like with Les Paul, over the recording thing. T-Bone would come to the Miller household to record music, and uh, you know, as he was friends with the family, and because Steve was becoming, you know, quite the musical child himself, T-Bone would go on to teach Steve how to play guitar, teach him how to, you know, play on stage, and Steve, you know, if, if you watch an interview with Steve, he'll, he'll talk about how much those early lessons he received from T-Bone meant to him. In fact, Steve would go on to start a band as a child at like the age of 12, and he would get booked to play things like uh, uh, high school dances and he charged what was then a, a lot of money and he would get it because his band was pretty popular. And this was all before he was in high school. He was like a, a legit child businessman getting, getting paid gigs at uh, a very young age uh, because his, his band was good and there wasn't a whole lot of people who could who could play around that time. But uh, the years would go on, and eventually he went to high school, and uh, one of his classmates was a guy named Boz Skaggs, uh, who went on to have a very successful career in his own right. Right off the bat, I'm not a very big Boz Skaggs fan. He's a little too soft rock for me. But he was very close friends with Steve, and he would eventually be a very early member in the Steve Miller Band. But their friendship started in high school and uh, i guess in an interview steve said he was kicked out of high school but i couldn't determine why just that he was kicked out <laughs> but he, he must have got his high school diploma at some point because in the early 60s uh, he returned to wisconsin and went to uw madison and then after a couple of years there he would study abroad in denmark as well when he came back from denmark he had determined what he wanted to do with his life he wanted to be a blues musician and to be a blues musician, his plan was to move to Chicago and really develop his chops, really learn how to play. And that's exactly what he did. He moved to Chicago, established himself very quickly, and uh, got chances to play with guys like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Paul Butterfield, and Buddy Guy, and others. And again, these are some of the you know quintessential... Blues greats of the 1960s. Like I said, if you watch any documentary about the foundation and formation of rock and roll, these guys are all huge parts of that. So Steve was learning how to play with the best and establishing some serious credibility. So after a few years of playing with these guys, he decided he wanted to move out to San Francisco and start his first real professional band. Part of the appeal of San Francisco was that bands like the Jefferson Airplane, the Grateful Dead, uh, the Butterfield Blues Band, you know, fronted by Paul Butterfield, uh, were all starting to hit their stride out in San Francisco, and it was a very, very popular music scene. It was also a very popular drug scene. (laughs) San Francisco was sort of the epicenter of the, uh, the hippie movement, Talking about things like Summer of Love and Acid. Acid was a huge part of the San Francisco scene. And Steve's talked about participating in that. He experimented with drugs while he was out there. You know, I can't say for certain, but I have a suspicion. I have the suspicion that um, he, he definitely still enjoys smoking a little weed from time to time. I've read a lot about Steve over the years and... Drugs were never really a thing that came up a lot. I don't think he ever dealt with any serious addiction. But uh, he's definitely somebody who enjoys smoking a joint every now and again. And you know what? Good for him. But anyway, what he said uh, about the San Francisco LSD scene. In 2016 he said, I stopped in 68 because drugs and work didn't mix. I like to be clear-headed and fast on my feet. I suspect there's some truth to that. You know, I think a lot of people probably got burnt out by that, uh, uh, that scene in the late 60s. But either way, um, he was out in San Francisco and he was establishing himself as a very credible artist. And sort of like the next big thing. In 1967, he booked two fairly big gigs that came one right after the other. The first of these gigs was he played the 1967 Monterey Pop Festival. That is one of the quintessential 60s rock festivals, sort of like Woodstock or Altamont. You know, Among the other bands that played the Monterey Pop Festival were the Jefferson Airplane, The Who, Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Animals, Otis Redding, and the Mamas and the Papas. Those are some of the biggest groups of the era. Mont-Marie Pop Festival is uh, where Jimi Hendrix um, lit his guitar on fire. That's sort of what it's famous for, and uh, a lot of people, call, you know, refer to that as sort of a, you know, watershed iconic moment of early, you know, classic rock of that '60s era. Uh, Steve had sort of a different opinion on that. Uh, he told the Washington Post, uh, "I thought it was pathetic." When I saw Jimi Hendrix stop playing the music he was playing and get down on his knees and pull out a can of lighter fluid and squirt it on the thing and light it, I went, boy, this really fucking sucks. So Steve's a little bit of a downer about the uh, the iconic Jimi Hendrix lighting his guitar on fire stunt. <laughs> I just kind of find that interesting. Steve, one thing I like about Steve Miller is that, you know, especially later in life, he gives no fucks. He will tell you exactly how he feels no matter what you ask him about in an interview he sure had some opinions about the rock and roll hall of fame that he put out there sort of infamously and it was it was just really great seeing a guy not hold back so steve was on that bill with all those artists and and that was a big deal and just 10 days after that festival he had a gig backing up Chuck Berry on Chuck Berry's 1967 Live at Fillmore Auditorium album. Now the story with that was Chuck Berry booked like a residency at the uh, uh, Fillmore Auditorium, and he he needed a backing band, and because the, the what was called the Steve Miller Blues Band was sort of the best up and comer. Uh, promoter Bill Graham reached out to Steve and and you know, asked him to uh, play the gig. And of course, you know, given that Chuck Berry was absolutely a legend at the time, uh, Steve took him up on it. Um, so the band backed up Chuck Berry and Steve played guitar on uh, all of the tracks and he also played harmonica on a few of them. Uh, I'm gonna play a clip of a song called "It Hurts Me too." Because uh, that's sort of a duet between Chuck and Steve And I think that's really cool So here is uh, a clip of a song called It Hurts Me Too From Chuck Berry's 1967 live at Fillmore Auditorium album When
0: things go wrong.
1: So Chuck Berry died in 2017 and Rolling Stone reached out to Steve Miller and basically asked him to talk about this record uh, for an article because, you know, up until then, there really wasn't a whole lot written about this record. You know, you would think this would be a really interesting piece of uh, Brock history as Chuck Berry was an icon of the era. And again, Steve was this up-and-comer. It was like right before the release of his first album. But there's not a whole lot written about it because the album's kind of meh. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to read to you a little bit from this article uh, and you're, and you'll see why. This is as read to Rolling Stone's Andy Green. Steve says, regarding Chuck Berry, When I met him in 1967, we were like the band in the San Francisco scene that was able to back up the blues guys. Chuck had recently been in jail, and he was a fairly unhappy guy. Bill Graham came to me and said, Hey, we're bringing Chuck Berry out, and I want you and your band to back him up. I said, Okay, I'll do it, but only if he'll come out here and rehearse for two days. Graham did his magic, and Chuck showed up, and we just had this great time. So Mercury Records says, This is great. We want to make a live album. And a deal was struck that afternoon, the day we were going to do the show. They brought in this funky little board to record it on. All of a sudden, this guy Abe Kesh shows up, who was the producer for Mercury. We're rehearsing and all ready to go when he takes Chuck Berry outside for 10 minutes before the show. Chuck comes back in, and he's almost unconscious, like he's in slow motion. So what Steve is talking about there, and he elaborates on this further in his interview with Howard Stern, 2016, Is uh, Chuck Berry, unfortunately, was a heroin addict. And the implication here is that he was on heroin during the recording of this album, which, uh, you know, sort of held him back uh, quality wise. And I think Steve sort of looks back on this record as a bit of a missed opportunity. You know, something that could have been really special where Chuck and his band were playing really well in the practice sessions. Maybe. They didn't play it 100% during the actual recording uh, because Chuck was on the junk, and, uh, and it slowed him down. A few more quotes from this article here, elaborating more on his experience with Chuck Berry. Steve said, Chuck had the hardest time because I don't think he trusted anybody, and he had such a hard life. But our shows at the Fillmore started the return of his career. We were backing Chuck and played all up and down the West Coast and East Coast at Paramount Theaters. We played a lot of gigs, But we finally had a fight. He got crankier as we went on doing these shows, and one night he started bad-mouthing the band on stage. We had two shows to do that night. We came off stage, and I said, Chuck, if you ever fucking do that again, you can get your own band, your own amp, your own stuff. You can't talk that way to my musicians on the stage ever. He stopped it, and from that time on, we were great friends. It was an honor and a privilege to play with him. He had a long life, a peculiar life, a lot of problems. And then he goes on to talk about, like, you know, a lot of uh, issues that Chuck Berry faced in his life. You know, this is still the era of segregation that really, really impacted black artists in negative ways, obviously. Uh, Chuck was mistreated horribly by Chess Records, um, which was his record label. I could do a whole show on, <laughs> uh, you know, how, what, a, what a miserable label that Chess Records was. And, um, you know, Chuck was not the most trusting of people. So he, he, he never, he didn't have good management. He never got paid in the way he should have. So I think Steve looks back on this era and this collaboration with Chuck Berry is sort of bittersweet. He got to play with one of his heroes. They became friends. It was a great start to his career, but Chuck could be difficult to get along with and you know at the time he was you know on heroin and maybe not playing to the best of his abilities so you could see why that would sort of be um, you know kind of good and bad for him shortly after this he signed uh, what was then a shockingly large contract with Capitol Records this contract was huge industry-wise. It was a landmark deal. It included not only a huge payday of, at the time, $750,000, that was a tremendous amount of money at the time, but it also gave him full artistic control, which is something he's proud of to this day, with good reason. He's always said that he wouldn't have had the success in his career without locking in that full artistic control from Capitol Records. It gave him the freedom to produce the music he wanted to produce. And it sort of took him a little while to get there, but he became incredibly commercially successful for Capital, so the investment paid off. He signs the deal in December 1967 and releases the first album, which I have here, called Children of the Future in June 1968. Now this is a blues record, um, which makes sense because at the time he was a just straight blues artist. There's a little bit of psychedelic rock on here, so it's very much of the time. Uh, There's some original tracks, some covers. But despite being a very talked-about, up-and-coming artist, uh, it wasn't terribly successful. Uh, And in my opinion, that's mostly because it's not not terribly good. (laughs) I'm going to play a track from it in a moment, but... Um, unless you're a huge fan of '60s blues or or '60s psychedelic rock, I don't know that you're going to enjoy this. I found it to be sort of dull. And I think it, I think the story, you know, of who's on it is a little more interesting. Boz plays on this record, and it was produced by Glenn Johns, who, if you know anything about the music industry, uh, that guy's a mega producer. This is a guy who worked with the Beatles. The Stones, The Eagles, Zeppelin, The Who, so many incredibly talented, incredibly famous artists. But this this wasn't after he had worked with all those groups. Uh, This was sort of at the earlier end of Glenn Johns' career. So, you know, I I sort of see this record as um, not quite ready for primetime Steve Miller Band. Uh, let's take a listen to uh, a blues staple, Key to the Highway. This is a very famous blues song, and it's Steve Miller's take on it. Here's Key to the Highway off of 1968's Children of the Future.
0: To the highway.
1: So that was key to the highway. Uh, not not a terrible track, but if I'm honest, like I said, this is this isn't a particularly special run. As far as the rest of uh, the stuff in his uh, catalog goes, this is one of the less impressive entries. There's better stuff, like his second album. Uh, his second album was called Sailor. That was released in October 1968, so just a few months after Children of the Future. And on Sailor, there are two, you know, signature Steve Miller songs. And those are "Living in the USA and Gangster of Love. "Living in the USA is one of my absolute favorites of his early era. And Gangster of Love is a song that he references in um, The Joker. "Living in the USA was released as a single, and it hit 94 on the Billboard Hot 100. So it was technically a hit, although not a big one. This was the last record to feature Boz Skaggs. Glyn Johns produced it, as he did the first one. Although not a huge improvement over Children of the Future, it, I think it showed Capitol Records that Steve was headed in the right direction. So, less than a year after the release of Sailor, he released his third album. This one was called Brave New World, and this was released in June 1969. And Brave New World is another step up. It's another improvement um, because on this there are also two very important songs of the Steve Miller discography here uh, and and both are just excellent tracks. Uh, The first of which is Space Cowboy and I'll just tell you flat out that is my favorite Steve Miller song. I don't know what Space Cowboy is supposed to be about. I always took it as as being about flying through space and being awesome. That's a great thing to sing a song about. (laughs) Oh, that one's a lot of fun. The other interesting song in this record is is interesting for a couple of reasons, and I'm going to play you the first reason now. Let's see if you recognize the uh, guitar riff on this song. Sounds uh, a little familiar, right? If you've ever heard his song Fly Like an Eagle, uh, you should know that that's the same riff. Steve was not afraid to recycle his own work if he felt there was a spot uh, where it could be used. And I think that was just a really good riff that he had and maybe was saving for the right song. And I think he had good reason to think that this might be the right song and this might be a huge hit. Because this song called "My Dark Hour" is a collaboration, perhaps his most famous collaboration, even more so than the Chuck Berry record, because the guy who helped record "My Dark Hour" is none other than Paul McCartney. Yeah, Steve's got a track with one of the Beatles. They were fans. George Harrison, in particular, was a early Steve Miller fan. So in 2016, Steve was on the Howard Stern show and. Howard asked him about this song uh, and what it was like recording with McCartney. And Steve said, We started playing and really kicking it out. We did this tune called My Dark Hour. This was the moment I go, I got it made. And that sounds about right. You know, you're a young, up-and-coming artist working on your third album, and you get to release a track with one of the Beatles, a guy who was in The Biggest Band of the World, at the time they like this this era the late you know the late 60s it was the end of the beatles run but they were as popular as ever so this was a really interesting collaboration um, but there is an interesting story behind it too um, it sort of came accidentally paul at the time was fighting with the rest of the beatles and this song was sort of born out of a like a therapeutic jam session uh, the story goes that uh, Paul was just hanging out in a recording studio. Steve came in; they, you know, started talking, and uh, Steve asked to borrow the studio. And Paul said, "Sure, but uh, you know, you gotta let me play on this track. Let me, let me help you put this together." And of course, Steve agreed. Uh, there's a book called "Many Years from Now" by a guy named Barry Miles, in which uh, Paul McCartney tells the story like this. And oh yes, I'm going to do the voice. Steve Miller happened to be in there recording late at night. And he just breezed in. Hey, what's happening, man? Can I use the studio? Yeah, I said. But can I drum for you? I just had a fucking unholy argument with the guys there. I explained it to him. Took ten minutes to get it off my chest. So I did a track. He and I stayed that night and did a track of his called My Dark Hour. I thrashed everything out on the drums there's a surfeit of aggressive drum fills and that's all I can say about that we stayed until late I played bass, guitar, and drums and sang backing vocals it's actually a pretty good track it was a very strange time in my life and I swear I got my first grey hairs that month okay I'm sorry for that awful <laughs> awful Paul McCartney impression but uh, sometimes I can't help myself and you, and you sort of get the gist Steve was in the right place at the right time, and he found Paul in the right mood, which was a bad mood. And uh, you know, Paul took his aggression sort of out on the song. It's it sounds great. It's it's too bad it wasn't a hit, but at the same time, it's sort of good it wasn't a. It's sort of good that it wasn't a hit because Steve was able to uh, recycle that riff for you know, if we're being honest, a better song. You know, my dark hour is a good track. Fly Like an Eagle's a masterpiece. It's good that uh, we were able to hear both of those. Steve's fourth album was called Your Saving Grace, and it was released in November 1969. Again, the same year as the one before. So he was cranking these albums out at two a year. That is just crazy to produce that amount of music in such a short period of time. And unfortunately, I think on this one, that quick release schedule, sort of bit him in the ass a little bit, because this this record isn't very good. I, I don't particularly enjoy it, there's not much here that's uh, very memorable, and, you know, it wasn't very successful to boot. Okay, now we're at the part of the show where we're going to take a little bit of a break. I'm hoping to sort of format these episodes kind of in the same way each time, where we'll have three segments on the main artist, and then in between those segments, we'll do uh, sort of a newsreel where we'll talk about uh, some current stuff that's going on in the world of classic rock. And then we'll do a, a, more, a more of a retrospective uh, where we look at some of the big events in classic rock from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Kind of like an on this day segment, but uh, not exactly to the date. We'll just keep it to the month. So here's the first of those segment. This is called Yesterday's News. I'm
0: way down. I'm so down. I'm reading yesterday's news. <laughs>
1: so not exactly yesterday, but some recent headlines I'm excited to talk about in the world of classic rock. We have kind of three big stories here. This first story is admittedly a couple of months old, but I can't pass up talking about it. Uh, Motley Crue is... Reuniting, going out on tour with Def Leppard, Poison, and Joan Jett for a very hot ticket concert event, a uh, big summer tour, big package deal. They're billing it as sort of like a mini festival at each uh, at each place they've booked. On it, on the surface, that's a great lineup, and I see why people are excited about it. I am going to be a stick in the mud here and say I'm not excited about it because I am very. Uh, irritated that Motley Crue is back together. And uh, that's because in 2014 2015, they announced that they were doing a. Or, well, in 2014 they announced it and then they played the tour through 14 and 15. It was called the final tour. It was supposed to be a 4 real farewell tour. They did so much press where they said, This is it. We are done touring forever. And here they are, less than five years later, doing a package deal. I did a vlog about this story, and I, I talk about why this sort of thing is, I think, very insulting to fans. And I don't even begrudge them for wanting to tour. But to go through this whole ordeal of creating a fake contract and doing this big press conference and all these interviews where you say... You know in no uncertain terms that the band is never going to tour again and then just to break all that less than four years later for a package deal i think is very insulting to the fans and uh you know it it sucks and uh if you're you're curious about my my take on that because i admit i admit it is a hot take uh please check out um the vlog i did it's on our youtube channel Okay, moving on. Our second news story is... uh, It was announced recently that David Lee Roth is going to be the opening act for Kiss's uh, next American leg of their farewell tour. And I think that's pretty exciting and and, and oddly appropriate. Uh, Kiss is on their end-of-the-road farewell tour. And uh, I would say, unlike Motley Crue, I I actually believe Kiss, that they're calling it a day. But... um, I I find it more interesting that uh, They got David Lee Roth Who's uh, returning to his solo career To um, be the opening act I saw David Lee Roth recently uh, Just a few weeks ago In Las Vegas Uh, I saw his second show Of his Vegas residency He was very entertaining Very energetic And I think he's Doing basically all he can to give you the best possible show. So I sort of think that's why it's really good he's booked as an opener. Because I think now most people will be seeing him because they mostly want to see Kiss. And he's kind of like, you know, an added bonus. And uh, I'm going to record something about uh, Dave's uh, Vegas residency where I'll elaborate on it a little bit better. Okay, and then the last story I want to talk about is just a very bizarre sort of developing story, as it stands right now. Aerosmith recently received the Music Cares Artist of the Year Award, and they were slated to perform. and It was a big celebration of Aerosmith, but the band uh, barred their drummer, Joey Kramer, from uh, playing. Not necessarily participating, he was allowed to attend the event and pose for photos and be at the show, but he was not allowed to take the stage. Uh, And they say it has to do with his ongoing health problems. This, to me, is very interesting. And, you know, not to get too far ahead of myself, but I sort of think Aerosmith might be trying to push him out of the band. This is not uncommon. Drummers... (laughs) Get You know, as Rodney Dangerfield would say, get no respect. You know, I think about guys like Bill Ward from Black Sabbath or Bunny Carlos in Cheap Trick who, you know, were sort of pushed out of their bands under bad circumstances. Joey Kramer showed up to the event to practice and you can, there's a video of it. Security is blocking him from entering the building. It's uh, downright sad. So I think. Joey's future with uh, Aerosmith is very much uncertain. And I think that's a story that uh, we got to pay close attention to here. Because if Aerosmith isn't happy with his playing, he could find himself out of the job. And uh, it, that's not, he's very vocal about, he does not want to retire. He wants to keep playing. He wants to stay with the band. So we're, we'll see how they treat him. And just sort of a funny little piece of trivia is that. That night, I guess, is sort of a cursed event because uh, the Music Cares Awards night was also, was it last year or two years ago? Uh, It was the last time Fleetwood Mac ever played with um, Lindsey Buckingham. They fired Lindsey Buckingham shortly after that event. So that would be sort of funny if if that started a trend. Uh, I shouldn't say funny. Be sad. But it would also be sort of funny. Okay that's enough news. Let's get back to the main show. I'm way
0: down. I'm so down I'm reading yesterday's news <laughs>
1: Okay, here we are at Steve Miller's fifth album, appropriately titled number five. This was released in July 1970. So again, still keeping up that pace of less than a year between releases. This album not really a big hit. But there's definitely some stuff worth exploring here. He had a minor hit with a song called Going to the Country. That hit number 69. Nice. Uh, On the Billboard charts. Uh, This is a more political album. And if you're into that kind of thing, if you're curious, you should check it out. My personal favorite song from the album is called, it is, the, the title is called Steve Miller's Midnight Tango. Years ago, I talked about this song and. And I've always said it's like um, the, the name of the best 70s porno never made. Steve Miller's Midnight Tango. After this album, he finally had a little bit of a break. Uh, and he took over a year, but only just over a year, to release um, his sixth album, which was called Rock Love. And this album is widely considered to be his worst. It was a critical and commercial flop. Steve regrets releasing it. Uh, in 2016, he told Loudersound.com, Rock Love bombed because they stole the master tapes off me and put the album out a week later unmixed. We were a cash cow, and I was too stupid to say no. I, I don't know what mixing needed to be done that would have made this a masterpiece. I, I don't think there was a lot of very good material there. I think, despite having slightly more than a year to work on it, I don't think it was ready. So, really, there's no point in spending much time on this one. Unfortunately, his seventh album, uh, which is called Recall the Beginning A Journey from Eden, is also really not worth talking much about. It's released in March 72. And the only little tidbit that's somewhat interesting is that it features a song called Enter Maurice. And Enter Maurice in the lyrics. There is the first appearance of The Pompatous of Love Which Steve made even more famous When he reused that line in The Joker Also in The Joker he references uh, Maurice So in that same interview I referenced just a moment ago He said uh, this about uh, Recall the Beginning He said That and Rock Love sold so badly Capital disowned them But Journey from Eden is a serious piece of work My wife Kim loves it well, uh, good for Kim, I guess. I, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not a fan. I'm not much of a fan of this one either. Uh, it's definitely better than Rock Love, uh, and I think that track, Enter Maurice, is at least interesting, but not a piece I listen to very often. Since we're in 1972, I'm going to play a clip of an interview he did with a German TV show uh, where he gets asked about that landmark record deal he made years ago with Capitol Records. And I think in the interview, Steve gets a little defensive. He is clearly stoned while during the interview, but they they do press him on 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 the money because that really was such a big deal. Offered you sixty thousand dollars. That was before oh that Oh, now no, I know what you want
0: to know. You're interested in money, right? Well, you are too. <laughs> you think so, man? Could be so. Yeah, well, that's that's what my publicity says, right? Like, I'm the absolutely, mm. uh, you know... Actually, man, the only reason you hear that is because what I did when I signed my record contract was I caused a revolution in the record industry in the United States. And that's you the man? information we get. No, exactly. the information you get is that I got 10 zillion dollars for signing or something, right? Mm. Man. But what I actually did, man, was I said, uh, you know, like, listen, man, <laughs> you know, you're going to have to pay us to make music. And not only you're going to have to pay us, but we know how much money you make, you know. And it became a thing where I started grabbing money from record companies. And Capital will tell you that any day of the week.
1: Oh, you think so, man? Yeah, Steve's a little bit of a a jerk in that one. (laughs) But I I, I get a kick out of it. It's a fun watch. Finally, we're going to get to some good stuff. So it was kind of a lull in the very early 60s. And basically, in 1973, Steve was starting to feel very fatigued and very downtrodden and sort of that his career was coming to a close. Ever since he had signed that deal with Capitol, he had scored a couple of minor hits. And he was very popular in the touring circuit, but he didn't have any big hits. He wasn't um, enjoying the level of success that perhaps he expected or perhaps Capitol expected. And uh, he was thinking this next album was going to be his last And if you know which album I'm talking about, you will also know that he was wrong. His eighth album was The Joker. Arguably his most famous song uh, was released on this one in 1973. Uh, He did not think it was going to be a hit when he wrote it. He basically sort of had a fuck it attitude. And when he wrote The Joker, he saw it as sort of like a, a goofy little party song that... Might be a minor hit, but like he had had before, but not much more than that. Thankfully, he was wrong. The Joker was a huge hit. Um, But before he released it, he had to fight and beg Capitol Records just to make sure they had copies of this record available in the towns that he was touring. Because Capitol sort of expected this to flop as well and didn't have a lot of faith in it at this point. So when it comes to The Joker, the single, uh, it hit number one on the Billboard charts. So it's unquestionably Steve's first big hit. In the lyrics of the song, he references, you know, Gangster of Love, Space Cowboy, Enter Maurice, and again, The pompous of Love, which is sort of a signature phrase with him. And uh, by doing that, the song is sort of a, a culmination of his earlier work. It it feels very appropriate that this would be his first huge hit. Uh, But I'm going to play a clip. This is from an interview he did either in the 80s or the 90s with VH1 where he talked about what his expectations for what the song uh, were at the time.
0: And uh, when we went into the studio and cut it, it was like... um... Not anything I was very serious about, and I didn't really think that it was a hit single or anything like that when I was making it.
1: Not something he was very serious about. That's really interesting. You know, it just goes to show there are so many artists who write these songs, and they originally want it off the record because they didn't think it would be a hit or they didn't like it or whatever, and then they just turn out to be wrong. The last thing they thought would be successful ends up being this, you know, signature moment for them. Anyway, this is a huge song, still a staple of classic rock radio, and a good record. Um, there's another song on here called Shibata Du Mama Ma, Ma," and uh, I'm f- I'm not sure if he still plays it in concert, but uh, I-, I saw him play it a couple of times. It is a fun song, and it's kind of one of the an overlooked little gem of Steve Miller's um, early era. So I think we're ready to take another break here. We're going to go into our next segment where we look back at some of the biggest. Headlines and stories of the classic rock era. Uh, This segment is uh, uh, maybe a little too obviously called Back in Time, but come on, what's more appropriate than that? Let's uh, take it away, Huey Lewis. Let's go back in time. Out in the west Texas town of El Paso I fell in love with a Mexican girl Okay, that was Marty Robbins' El Paso, which was the first song to top the Billboard charts in the 1960s. Um, so that was uh, the, the first number one hit in January 1960. You might recognize this song if you were a fan of the TV series Breaking Bad that was used in one of the episodes. Uh, great song. You know, and great usage in that show But, um, also what happened uh, One of the big stories that happened that month uh, January 1960 Was the first and perhaps most famous Paola scandal Uh, The National Association of Broadcasters Threatened fines for any radio disc jockeys Accepting money for playing particular records Paola has been a huge part of uh, record promotion all through the era of modern music, and uh, this scandal was a particular big one. Uh, it famously killed the career of DJ Alan Freed. Uh, that's the DJ who coined the term rock and roll. His career collapsed after he got busted on this, and the guy died like five years later. It's honestly, his story is really sad. But eventually he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I think... History has proved that that guy was uh, a great advocate for early rock and roll, despite the scandal. Now, someone who was not brought down by the scandal but was accused was uh, someone much more famous, a guy named Dick Clark, who you're probably familiar with. He actually had to testify in front of the House of Representatives, and he said, quote, I think the crime I have committed, if any, is that I made a great deal of money in a short time on little investment. But that is the record business. Uh, I will say there's probably some truth to that, but I would not be surprised if that was a smokescreen. <laughs> who, who, you know, I don't know if if Dick Clark uh, took Payola. I sort of suspect he did, just because of how widespread the scandal was and how long standing it was. Record labels and independent promoters paid off radio DJs the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up until uh, I think the the most famous time I remember that scandal re-emerging was with uh, Limp Bizkit and that's in the 2000s. But uh, if you're interested about that scandal, I would really recommend a book called Hitmen by a guy named Frederick Dannen. It talks about all these different artists that participated in it. And a lot of artists didn't actively participate in it, but their record label or independent pr- promoters um, did it on their behalf without, without getting their approval. Chances are, if, if your favorite artist is from the classic rock era, they knowingly or not participated in Paola in some form or another. Uh, I remember seeing the original episode of uh, VH1's Behind the Music on sticks, and uh, they talk about it openly. Hate to say it, but it paid off. I mean, that is a way, that was a way for bands to get in the door. So let's fast forward 10 years. Let's go to 50 years ago, January 4, 1970. Keith Moon accidentally kills his chauffeur. So Keith Moon is the drummer of The Who. His drinking and drug use is legendary during a time when drinking and drug use was... Extremely excessive across the board for rock stars, and he partied <laughs> in ways that most people could not keep up with. You know, not to be a scold, but there's a, a huge dark side to this, and you know, not and it's not just that uh, he died himself uh, on an overdose. He, he died on an overdose of a a sedative he took to sort of control his alcohol addiction. He died in 1978, but but eight years earlier. In this, There's this horrible story of where he accidentally kills his chauffeur. He and his group of friends are are at the opening of a, a bar called the Red Lion. Apparently, the neighborhood this bar was in was frequented by skinheads, and there were a bunch of skinheads at this bar, and they started a commotion with Moon's posse. And as Moon and his group are trying to escape in the limo, the driver, Neil Borland, gets out to confront and disperse all these skinheads. And then, as he's out in the front of the car trying to disperse the crowd, Keith Boone, drunk off his ass, crawls into the front seat, hits the gas pedal, runs his show fur over, drags the poor guy until he dies. You know, Keith Boone not realizing what he's even doing. Not realizing that he's basically killing his friend. Absolutely tragic story. And uh, Keith Boone was charged with manslaughter. But it was ruled that the death was an accident, so he didn't um, go to jail for that. But he did have to uh, plead guilty to drunk driving and driving without a license and all that. And, of course, sadly, the addendum to this awful story is that Moon himself died less than 10 years later of an overdose. So let's stick with the sad stories. January 1970 also marked the end of uh, a couple of very famous collaborations. Uh, In January 1970, Diana Ross... Uh, ...played her final show with the original lineup of The Supremes. Simon and Garfunkel released their final album, The Masterpiece, Bridge Over Troubled Water. And Jimi Hendrix uh, breaks up Band of Gypsies after playing just one and a half songs at a concert. Uh, Jimi Hendrix left the stage shouting, That's what happens when Earth fucks with space. Never forget that. I have no idea what the fuck that means... But he sounds mad. (laughs) And then for our last story, let's fast forward another 10 years and go to 40 years ago, January 16, 1980. Paul McCartney, who we talked about just a little bit ago, is arrested for possession of marijuana in Japan. Former Beatle
0: Paul McCartney was jailed without bail in Tokyo today after being arrested on charges of marijuana possession and smuggling. A 37-year-old rock star was arrested at Narita
1: Airport after almost half a pound of marijuana was found in one of his suitcases. If found guilty, he could receive seven years in prison. So the interesting thing about this was this wasn't the first time McCarty was arrested for uh, uh, possession of marijuana. He was arrested in Sweden in 1972, on his farm in Scotland in 1973, and also in L.A. in 1975. Uh, during his time in the Japanese jail, he was called prisoner number 22 and given absolutely no special treatment during his 10 days in the jail. I guess he had to figure it out for himself that he was not allowed to bathe or brush his teeth each morning until he had swept his cell you know, and folded up his bedding. He was eventually released because of his celebrity, really, and he came out of that jail defiant. And uh, I'm going to play a clip of this interview where he uh, speaks openly about decriminalization. Can we get one thing straight?
0: That whatever you think and whatever you think I've done, this, I'm telling you, this substance, cannabis, is a whole lot less harmful than rum punch, whiskey, nicotine, and glue, all of which are perfectly legal. (laughs) What about your children? children, I would like to see it decriminalized. Because I don't think, in the privacy of my own room, I was doing anyone any harm whatsoever. Did you think they'd send you to drugs? Are you? I don't take drugs. I never have taken drugs. Are you going to? No. Were
1: you worried about being Never again. Did you catch that at the end? He said he would never again take drugs. (laughs) I think that's kind of funny. Um, And, you know, obviously he was joking because he would be arrested and fined yet again for marijuana possession in uh, Barbados in 1984. So there you go. Paul McCartney and his constant legal troubles over the same issue. All right let's let's uh, get back to our our last segment here and bring this sucker home So because of the release of the Joker, he had earned the right to take some vacation and he did just that he took a year and a half off to basically prep his next albums and plot his next moves and he had an incredibly prolific period during this time off he recorded all of the music for his next two albums and also for a song that became a hit for him in the 1980s called Abracadabra so sort of like all of the music that he released during his commercial height was recorded in this year and a half he took off uh, after the success of the Joker, and part of what brought him out of this vacation was the band Pink Floyd. He was friends with David Gilmore, and uh, Pink Floyd asked him to open for them for a concert at Nebworth on uh, July fifth, nineteen seventy-five. As Pink Floyd had just released Dark Side of the Moon, so this was going to be a show bigger than. So this was going to be a show that was bigger than what Steve was used to for his audience. It was a big opportunity to gain uh, new fans, so he felt a lot of pressure for this show, and he wanted to have a great rock and roll song that was going to knock their socks off and be be a launching point for you know his his next album cycle. So feeling his pressured. he wrote the song "Rockin' Me." So he wrote that song specifically so he would have a kick-ass rock track to debut at that gig, and that's exactly what he did. And it, and it played great and went over very well. And Rockin' Me would go on to become uh, a number one hit when he released it, along with his his opus, uh, Fly Like an Eagle, in May 1976. Fly Like an Eagle is one of the best albums of that year, and it is one of the great quintessential Classic rock records of the 1970. This is a great listen all the way through. From the hit singles, Rockin' Me, and the title track, to songs that are concert staples even today, like you know, Wild Mountain Honey, Dance, 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 Mercury Blues, Take the Money and Run. These are great tracks, and I can't say enough good about this record. And I feel that it is an absolute must-have for any classic rock fan. And then the album he released just a year later, May 1977, is Book of Dreams. And this is another huge collection of hits. Jet Airliner, Swingtown, Jungle Love, The Stake. These are all concert staples, and my goodness, this is an amazing one-two punch of records one year right after another, and that's because he was just creating so much great music in this uh, stretch of time he had off. You know, he was able to developed two very strong records uh, with a lot of music Uh, he really enjoyed in between just the stuff that were the radio staples. The big hit on Book of Dreams was Jet Airliner. Uh, That was a top ten hit, uh, hit number eight. That song was originally written by a guy named Paul Pina. The interesting story about that was uh, Paul Pina had had a version of this song written and ready to go, but he ended up in some Ungodly dispute with his record label That by the end of it He wasn't able to release music Until The year 2000 or something like that Someone he worked with Also worked with Steve Heard this track Jet Airliner and thought Maybe the Steve Miller Band could do something with it Steve loved the track, they recorded it, pumped it up to make it a bit more of a rock anthem, and it became this tremendous hit. And it was great for both artists, because it was obviously a big success for Steve, but the royalties for Jet Airliner that were paid to Paul Pina, you know, for a stretch of his career, was his primary source of income. So Steve did this guy a huge favor by turning his song into a hit. Paul Pina's version did eventually get released. It's a little slower, it's, it's a little more folk. It's, it's not a rock version. So I prefer Steve's version, but I think uh, checking out Paul's version is, is worthwhile as well. So I think these are, are two fantastic albums. They absolutely represent his commercial height in the late 70s. And uh, again, classic rock fans, these are the two you gotta check out. Fly Like an Eagle, Book of Dreams. So the next album he released was a second compilation called Greatest Hits 78 to 74. This record was based, is more or less just the last two records, plus The Joker. And I'm sure this image looks familiar to most of you. Because if you've ever been to a bar that had an old-fashioned jukebox before they have all these digital ones now, this was probably every barroom jukebox in the country. It is a really good compilation of his late 70s commercial hits and, you know, great looking album cover, too. This is Steve's best selling record ever. Uh, It is currently ranked number 35 on the RIAA list of greatest selling albums ever. Another Greatest Hits compilation, Eagles' Their Greatest Hits, is number one. Uh, And then you know Michael Jackson's Thriller is number 2. This one is down at number 35, but I think sort of like the Eagles and Steve Miller are very uh th- those bands have a lot of uh, connective tissue, I guess they were big around that same era, both of them. Their best-selling albums ever are the the compilations they released in the in the late 70s. So, speaking of the Eagles, um, with these two hit records back-to-back, Steve was now an A-lister, and uh, because of this A-lister status, he um, did stadium tours now. He wasn't playing small venues, he was playing football stadiums, and these big arenas, and he was co-headlining these tours with huge groups of the time, the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac. So he was recruited to open for the Eagles by the Eagles... um, Notorious manager Irving Azoff, and uh, I'm going to read from a Rolling Stone article from 1979. Uh, It was a cover story about the Eagles. So the guy who wrote the story uh, talks a little bit to um, Irving Azoff, the manager, and uh, Irving had some interesting comments uh, about Steve Miller, so I'm going to read them here. This is from uh, the Rolling Stone cover story about the Eagles from November 1979. Steve Miller, the opening act, takes the stage to a big ovation from the Milwaukee teenagers. Azoff, behind a stack of speakers, gives them the finger. Look at this guy, he spits, indicating Miller's short hair and conservative dress. He even looks like an accountant, undoubtedly the cheapest man in rock and roll. You know he gets all his equipment into one truck? If he's so horrible, I ask, how come you hired him to open for you? He's the least of the worst, says Azoff, still angry because Miller cut his set short the previous night. Some other act, and we get a 100 bikers in the front row. And, and really, I just read that because to me, that's just one of those moments where it's like, Irving Azoff is a piece of garbage. That guy sucks. And I can't believe this year the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is inducting him and And people who go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame are going to have to read some masturbatory garbage about Irving Azoff. Industry crooks should not be celebrated in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's all I'm saying. And and, and I will absolutely take every opportunity on this show to bag on Irving (laughs) Azoff any chance I get. (laughs) He spent his entire career uh, parasiting off and screwing over artists and, and also really screwing over fans. So, uh, I'll, I'm i sure I'll talk about him more in later episodes, but I just find this story a little bit funny because he kind of speaks to some some things that, eh, you know what, aren't totally wrong. <laughs> the getting all his equipment into one truck was really interesting because I, it makes me remember an interview I saw with Steve um, during his 2010 tour when he was promoting the record Bingo. Uh, Steve talks about having... People present to him a lot of different uh, ideas for the stage uh, behind him. And he said he was fine with whatever creative thing they wanted to put together. His only rule was all of the stuff for the stage had to be able to fit into one truck. The guy makes sound financial decisions. (laughs) That's all I'll say. I don't know that he's the cheapest man in rock and roll, but he's smart enough uh, to keep his eye on the budget. You know, Steve definitely has some harsh opinions about people, you know, who are in charge of record deals, but I don't think I've ever read anything he has to say uh, about Irving Azov. I would be interested uh, to, to hear his side of it. Going back to what I mentioned earlier, I would really recommend the book Hitmen by Frederick Dannon. That book talks a lot about Irving. Okay, we're a little off topic on Steve, so I think this is a good place to, to call it a day. We're going to pick up. Where we're leaving off today in the next episode, where we take a look at the second half of Steve's career going from 1980 up until present day. So stay tuned for that. Check out that episode. Uh, you know, we're just getting started. A lot of great stuff um, in that era. Um, other stuff we have coming up, I mentioned earlier, I'm going to do sort of a bonus episode uh, talking about David Lee Roth's uh, Las Vegas residencies. Uh, he's doing one right now, but this isn't the first time he's been out there. He did another sort of infamous residency in the mid-90s. I'm going to talk about the differences between the shows and about how David Lee Roth's solo career has you know, been in and out of Vegas over the years. So that I think will be fun. Um, but otherwise, as of right now, I would really encourage you to find us on, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We only have three social media pages. Uh, you can find us at play that podcast on twitter which is also the url for our facebook page so just search play that podcast all one word on facebook on youtube just search play that rock and roll you'll either find our old channel which will redirect you to the new one or you'll find the new one hopefully finally if you're listening to this on itunes i would of course implore you beg you pleading please go over and rate and review us on itunes that's a tremendous help, especially now in these, these early episodes as I sort of get myself established here. So I want to thank you for tuning in uh, to this debut episode of Play That Rock and Roll, podcast edition. Much like a TV pilot, I, I think it can only get better than here. So if you enjoyed this at all, please stick with me. I'm only going to get better as time goes on. I'm, I'm really committed to doing a very good show. Over the next several years. And, and I, I hope you enjoyed the stuff we talked about, but like I said, it's only gonna get better from here. So with that, thanks for tuning in. Check out some Steve Miller music. In the meanwhile, we'll see you next time. Steve, play us out. I'm
0: sure you know where yeah, 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 yeah.